Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. Good morning, everyone, and welcome back to Grass Talk Radio. Uh, we got a little cold weather coming in a few days. We may even get the final frost of the year, so I'm being very careful with my little plants, my little seedlings. They're going in and out of the tack room. Looks like in a couple of days we may get down to 34, which means we'll be at 31 here. So, uh, you know, that's why I have not planted squash and things like that out in the garden because I don't want to have to cover it all up. Anyway, today on this piece of paper typed on this Royal Aristocrat typewriter, not the Tom Hanks Corona typewriter that he loves, but a Royal Aristocrat, both, both things which I loathe. <sighs> but, you know, things are as they are. Uh, I want to talk about calling it quits. When do you pull a plug? When is enough enough? When do you say, all right, I'm done? And why do you do that? And how do you do that? I think it's, you know, it's important. I, I have spent a great amount of time on this podcast, encouraging you to start things, you know, it, even if it's as minor as start learning a new thing, learn, learn some theory, learn to read standard notation, um, take up a new instrument or, you know, take lessons or start a band or start a jam. You know, I'm always encouraging, do something, do something, do something, do something. New, new, but you have to look at the flip side of that, which is when do you stop? And I've talked a little bit about, you know, some of, you know, well, I used to do X, Y, and Z, and now I, I you know, I don't do that anymore, but it's equally important. It's always yin and yang, day, night, light, dark, Starting, ending. Sometimes you have to end things. I was talking about the old tree. Well, that old tree is done. Not not completely done because that old hundred-year-old laurel oak, which shaded our house and not only our family, but the family that lived here before us and the family before them and the people who built the house, that old tree's job is you think it's done when they cut that sucker down and cut it up in pieces. I should read you sometime my poem I wrote um, about an oak tree. Maybe I'll do that in the next episode. Y'all be uh, hanging there waiting for that. I know you can't wait to hear it. But that old oak tree, and, you know, I have actually talked to that tree. His job is not done because we're never done. You think you're done, but you're not. Cutting a tree down does not end the tree. Every molecule in that tree, every atom, 
is still present. The chainsaw does not destroy matter. It just rearranges it. <laughs> it rearranges it in, in a way such that the tree cannot, uh, you know, grow anymore. Now it can only rot in the burn pile, as it were. Um, but what I did to encourage the continuation of the molecules and the atoms of the oak tree is I found several healthy, very long branches from the oak tree. And I ordered, I told you about this in the last episode, you know all about this, from Fungi Perfecti, or Fungi Perfecti, some mushroom spawn. So I cut the logs, and then I let them rest for a while. And then I trimmed them up on the bandsaw and made them all nice and uniform and nice clean ends. And Jackson helped me, and we worked as a team and used the drill press with a 3 8 bit and drilled a whole bunch of holes in these uh, log segments. They were all about three, no, but probably more like four to six inches in diameter and about, I don't know, 14, 15 inches long. So we drilled holes in a diamond pattern around the log, you know, and marked them. And so Jackson was marking them. I was drilling them. And then he inserted the inoculated dowels, which is what we purchased to get the mushroom mycelium and uh, put them in the holes. And then we melted down the cheese wax. I'm sure at some point in the past, I've talked about making cheese and uh, how I traded a woman. She had two cows and she was hand milking these cows every day and had too much milk for her family of six children. And I hooked up with her and, you know, like I, I could use some milk. So she would come over here in her van with all the kids in the van and bring me big gigantic buckets of raw milk. And uh, I made butter, I made cheese. And uh, anyway, one of her cows died and uh, that was the end of the milk thing. But at that point, she told me, uh, one day she came to deliver the milk. She'd come about once a week. And uh, she said, I know you play the banjo because I was playing the banjo when she arrived. I was sitting on the couch playing the banjo. And, oh, you play the banjo. And my husband, I was thinking about for his birthday, getting him a banjo. Could you have anything you could recommend? I said, yeah, I could recommend this one I have sitting over here in the corner. Um why don't, uh, you know, this is a decent little banjo. And uh, anyway, she delivered the milk and I paid her for the milk and stuff. And then I gave her the banjo. I said, just take it. Take it, give it to your husband, put a bow on it. And then you can, you know, pay me back 
pay me. I mean, I, I'm thinking I'm probably going to sell it for a hundred bucks. So if you've got something worth a hundred dollars, you know, just lay it on me, perhaps more milk or whatever. And she said, well, uh, the other cow is, is not, uh, producing or I forget the word she said, but anyway, this cow was going to the slaughterhouse and she said, we're going to have some beef. I said, well, you know, I like beef. Beef is good. Uh, just pay me in beef, you know, figure about a hundred bucks worth of butchered beef and uh, bring it over here. I, I'll eat that beef. Yeah. Anyway, lady took the banjo, put it in her van with her six wide-eyed homeschooled children. And uh, I got out the, uh, I, I pulled my car around to jump off her van because it wouldn't crank. And off she went. I've never seen her since. I haven't seen the banjo since and I never got the beef. <laughs> And I don't have any milk anymore for, for making the cheese and butter. And uh, my wife said, you need to find, I'm like, nah, you know what? I didn't care about that banjo anyway. And, uh, probably the worst thing that could happen to that woman right now would be me hassling her about a hundred dollar banjo. Now I'm just guessing her husband probably did not learn to play the thing. Just taking a guess. I have no way of knowing. But it's a better story to not know and to have no resolution. Anyway, so I quit making cheese and I quit making butter and that was forced upon me. But I've talked so much about you should start this, you should do this, you should, you know. Get a jam session started. Even just invite your neighbor over and pick a little while, you know, things like that. I've said, you know, start, start, start. And you've got to do that. And just like with the old oak tree, I cut up those limbs and we inoculated them. They are technically, it is now a mushroom farm. We have those um, logs stacked up crisscrossed with a, and waxed them and, you know, I'm not going to explain how to grow mushrooms because I really don't know. I mean, I only know the little instruction pamphlet that came with it. Just like the guy who buys a banjo and downloads my banjo instruction course. Eh, what does he really know? You know, he's got the banjo and he's got the little pamphlet, you know, and, uh, you just, you just do it and see how it turns out. Anyway, uh, we got mushrooms growing. I've got uh, shiitake and blue oyster, one of my faves, um, growing inside those logs. Now, they're going to fruit at some point, um, probably, I would guess, in the fall. I'm observing the ends of the logs to you know, monitor the inoculation and the growth of the mycelium within the log, you know, the ends of the logs are waxed, dipped in the cheese wax that I 
used to melt and coat my uh, chunks of cheese in before they went six months in the bottom of the fridge and for proper aging. But since I don't have a lady with a cow and nor the beef, the promised beef, which never occurred, uh, I don't have any need for making cheese. Therefore, the cheese wax was better used as uh, sealing the ends of the logs and the inoculation points of the oak logs for the shiitake mushrooms. Okay. See, you can always recycle things. And uh, so I quit making cheese, but I started making mushrooms. This is what happens. Some, t some things you just need to quit. Everybody's been in a band or a jam or a marriage or a business or an employment. And they knew throughout the whole thing, I need to quit. But maybe you can't quit. Maybe there are pressing, you know, financial obligations bearing down upon you or... Maybe it's just something internal in you. You're not a quitter. You know, I don't give up. I, I stay with it. You know, it's like the band on the Titanic playing as the ship went down. You know, maybe you're that kind of person. Some people quit at the first whiff of, you know, and, and run for the hills. And other people stay to the bitter end. And I've done both in, in different situations. Because the situation itself tells you what to do. If you use some common horse sense or donkey sense. But I thought I'd talk in today's episode about the art of quitting. Because some things you need to quit. And sorry for the rattling of the paper. Um, let me look here. What I typed. How do you quit? And why do you quit? Well, on the how do you quit? You need to quit if you're going to quit. And I know this depends on the situ the precise situation. There are some things you just need to quit right then. Bam, cut it off, be done. And other things, maybe you're quitting for a, a reason that is... Um, a little more subtle, then you might need to take a soft exit. If you have obligations to whatever you are quitting, let's say you're the editor of the newsletter or you're the bass player and we have four gigs on the calendar booked out six weeks. I know none of that is actually happening right now in this idiotic pandemic situation. But uh, let me just, you know, pretend, pretend that you might actually have six gigs on the calendar. Well, you have a moral obligation to fulfill your duties that you have agreed to. You, know, you agree to be in the band and you're a band member and there are booked gigs. It is your responsibility to show up and play those gigs and don't sandbag and don't be nasty and... Do your part. But I think it's fair to give warning and 
place your notice in the hands of the powers that be and say, I will be leaving after, you know, this gig or that gig. That's, that's, that's going to be the last one. Do it properly. You'll walk away with your chin held high. And no one will think evil of you. I mean, they might a little bit like that. You know, I can't believe he, you know, let them think what they want. But the evidence will show that you were of good moral character, moral character. That is not a mushroom I'm speaking of, although I would like to grow some of those morals. Um, wonderful. My father used to go out. He used to take us when we were kids. Well, like three four, five years old, and we would go sponge hunting. He called them sponges. We're going to go out and get sponges. This is when we lived in Ohio. We'd wander through the woods, following Dad around, looking for sponges, which is what he called a moral mushroom. Delicious, by the way. So we'd go get a basket full of sponges. I can't get them to grow here. I One time... I got one to grow. Well, I didn't get it to grow. It just popped up in an old spot where I'd burned a bunch of uh, sticks and limbs. And that burn spot, they seem to favor like old burned patches. Anyway, Pop used to take us sponge hunting. <laughs> that was morel mushrooms. I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about morals with A-L. You know, if you don't have any, get some morals. They're, they're good. A lot of people don't have them. And uh, a lot of people only have the morals that, you know, they're just dished out. Here, here's a plate full of morals and you take these on and you're a good person. But they've never thought about them themselves or determined for themselves if, in fact, that those ideas are true and valid and correct. Most people don't waste time with stuff like that. Uh, you know, like, hey, if all my friends say it's good, it must be good. Bell-bottom pants. I remember when the bell-bottom pants came out. I was in junior high school, and I, I was like, these are stupid. And next thing you know, there's these uh, people <laughs> walking around with these gigantic... They, they called them elephant ears. Gigantic bell-bottom pants that completely covered your feet. Floor sweepers, we called them. And uh, I just thought they were completely, utterly ridiculous. And I refused to wear them. Well, pretty soon the Sears catalog, where Mom bought all our school clothes, had nothing in them but the bell-bottoms. And I was like, I don't, I don't like these bell-bottoms. I'm not wearing that stuff and so I, I don't know where mom got them but she had me the old straight leg pants and I never never wore those stupid idiotic floor sweeping elephant ear bell bottom pants and all the people that thought they were really cool because they had them those people are not cool they're just suckers and uh, slaves to fashion Anyway, so let's talk about quitting. Sometimes you need to quit stuff. You're in a band. You're in a jam. You belong to a church. 
or uh, you subscribe to a political belief system and uh, a political party or uh, you, you name it. At some point, if you do a little thinking for yourself, you may say, well, then wait a minute now here. This is, uh, I can no longer be associated with this thing, and so I must quit. So I'll tell you about uh, some of my quitting episodes. Uh, the first thing, is, and most obvious for me personally, is when I quit Cedar Hill. And I have neglected telling this tale about Cedar Hill, that there are in fact two Cedar Hills, I might have hinted around at it, but just let me get it out on the table right now. I played in the band Cedar Hill. There was, at that time, uh, at the time the band Cedar Hill founded in 1976, I was present at the selection of the name. I was there. I wasn't in the band. I didn't be, uh, that was 76. I was not in the band till 83, but I was there. The day the name was chosen, it was on a dentist uh, porch at this uh, gig in Morrow, Georgia, just in the shadow of the water tank in Morrow, Georgia. I'm, I was there, and Jim Rutherford was the fill-in guitar player that night. All you Jimmy Rutherford fans who remember that great dude, man, what a speed demon on the guitar. Anyway, I was there. And the name Cedar Hill was chosen. And there was another band. And back in those days, Bluegrass Unlimited was the main uh, information portal. We didn't have Facebook and Twitter and all this garbage that we have today. We just had Bluegrass Unlimited. And they published an annual band directory. And if you wanted to get any chance of any bluegrass gigs at any bluegrass festivals, you would submit your band information to Bluegrass Unlimited, and it would come out once a year in the Bluegrass Unlimited band directory. So the boys in Cedar Hill sent in their information. Cedar Hill, 1723 Mary Oak Road, Marietta, Georgia, forget the zip code, and Jim Duck Adkins, contact person, and the phone number, which is to this day unchanged, except the area code, I think, changed. Same number all them years. That's a great marketing technique, by the way. Keep your phone number. Anyway, there was Cedar Hill, and when the thing came out, look in it. Cedar Hill. Who's the next band on the list? Cedar Hill Grass. Cedar Hill Grass. So we had Cedar Hill and Cedar Hill Grass. You know, there are varieties. You know, you can't, you know. Anyway, Cedar Hill Grass later uh, became Cedar Hill. So now there's two Cedar Hills. Now, wait a dadgum minute. How can there be two Cedar Hills? <laughs> and I, I think I told the story of, you know, being at the Bluegrass Festival and seeing the flyer. With my picture on it, our, our band, there's our picture on the flyer. I took the flyer, showed it to Duck, and I said, hey, when did you book this thing? He says, I don't know anything about that. It was the other band. So they booked the other Cedar Hill, but put our Cedar Hill's picture on there. So truth be known, they didn't even know who they were hiring. 
they certainly didn't know which picture to put on the flyer. So I was, I said, we should go. We should show up. Wouldn't that be funny? You know, when they announced Cedar Hill, two bands, one from the left and one from the right, come out and duke it out. That'd be funny. I wish we had done that, but no, they, you know, you know, the guys, they, they didn't want to do that. <laughs> and that is, by the way, Cedar Hill is a registered trademark, um, by Robert McIsaac. And, uh, anyway, it's all water under the bridge, as they say, or bridge under the water. Anyway, that's the Cedar Hill I'm talking about, the Atlanta Cedar Hill, the real Cedar Hill. <laughs> and uh, I quit. Why did I quit? Well, I joined in 1983, and I quit in 2010. I think, yeah, yeah, 2010. Why did I quit? Because I loved it. I love playing in Cedar Hill. Well, I'm, I'll just be honest. I'll tell you why I quit. It was 10 things. I'm not going to tell you all 10, but I'll just tell you. Um, but seriously, my mandolin playing had begun to degrade over the years. I was a mandolin player in Cedar Hill. And uh, I don't know. It just got harder and harder and harder to play cleanly, play the way I wanted to play and play accurately and quickly. And I mean, not that I was ever that great, but, um, you know, I just saw it kind of going away. And I had started this other band, the Incorrigible String Band, where I was a bass player. And my bass playing was getting better and better and better. And my mandolin playing was getting steadily worse and worse and worse. And so that was a large part of it. I was like, you know, I don't want to be like George Foreman, you know, come back and, you know, have that big comeback and then get your nose broken or something. I, I figured it was better to go out on a high note, you know, plus I'd, you know, told those same old jokes and one-liners and, you know, done the act. 27 years, that's enough, you know. <laughs> I mean, how many times do you have to do that? I, I was in Cedar Hill way longer than Earl was in Flat and Scruggs. So put that in your pipe and smoke it, Earl. <laughs> okay. So let's, uh, I quit Cedar Hill for a variety of reasons. Nothing personal. I, I love those guys, and I still do. All of the members that have ever been in Cedar Hill. Some of the more um, hallowed members of the band were only in for a couple of years. And, uh, you know, they left a good impression. They left on good terms. It's important to do that. You don't want to be, you know, don't go out in a blaze of glory, you know. Just be honest. Uh, state your reasons and uh, be accommodating to the, you know, to your obligations. Don't leave something and leave everybody stranded help them out don't just you know pull the rug out from under let's say you were the editor of the newsletter of the bluegrass association well don't just get mad and quit and delete all the files you know you can get mad but keep it to yourself and say you know i'll do next month's issue and after that i'm done and i'm going to uh, copy all the files onto this thumb drive and uh you know, whoever you select to take over as the editor or whatever, I will, 
give them everything I have and, you know, don't, don't deliberately burn your bridges. Uh, anyway, I mean, think about it. Sometimes quitting is the best thing you can do because if you're doing something that is not working for you or them, and generally, if, if you're doing something and you're unhappy and you're dissatisfied and you've got a lot of angst and well, you're hurting the whole thing. So actually it may, you could help a band by quitting. You get, you get what I'm saying? You may be the boat anchor that's holding them back. So, you know, it's like in a marriage. If, 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 if it's over and you have irreconcilable differences, are you helping them by sticking around and just hating on them all the time? I mean, seriously. You know, free them, you know, open your hand and let the bird fly away. Free them for yourself. You want to free both and you want to do it in, uh, with, you know, the ability to, after the fact, say, well, I left on good terms. I, under the circumstances, you know, and you should leave bands that way. Everybody does it. Everybody's been in multiple bands. Well, how did they leave? Was it a, a war and a fist fight or was it, uh, you know, on good terms? Leave on good terms. That's my advice. Now, I'll tell you about another band I was in. I was in the Mosier Brothers. And I knew Jeff Mosier going way back, back to the home remedy days. And uh, the, what else? They had, it was like a band name about every other year. Uh, good Medicine and uh, uh, the, the Backsliders, maybe? Uh, or Jeff Mosier and Backslide. I can't remember. I tried to get him on the show. He wouldn't return my email. So who knows? <clears throat> I wanted to get him on talk about all this old stuff, but he used to have a, a show on a WRFG in Atlanta called uh, Born in a Barn. I, I, I like Jeff. And we go way on back, you know, have a lot of uh, shared territory, you might say. Know a lot of the same people. Anyway, they had this band. So I'm going to tell you why I quit this band. First of all, it was in conjunction with quitting Cedar Hill. I, I was on the fence about leaving Cedar Hill. Like, I'm, I know I'm done. I need to get out of the mandolin business and need to get over to the bass. If I'm going to continue as a musician and be able to play competently on stage. And by the way, I want to state, I made a deliberate attempt to get all of my mandolin instruction videos done before my mandolin playing completely went to pot. Because I could see the signs of coming. And I thought, well, if I'm going to share what I know, I need to do it now. And so over about a three-year period, I recorded a bunch of these mandolin videos while I still could play. I'm not sure that I could play that stuff today. Not uh, not the way I want to play them. But, you know, I mean, take a look at Bob Osborne. Take a look at Bill Monroe and his fine. You know, nothing lasts forever, folks, that old oak tree. Uh, you know, nothing lasts forever. So you sometimes you got to take re reassessment of 
your abilities and your talents and things like that and go, well, you know what? I had a good run, boys, but I'm going to leave that thing in the case. And you can just call me your new washed up bass player or something. You know, if that's, if that's what you got to do, you got to do it. Because you don't want to go out on a, you know, you don't want to go out at a low point, you know, when things you know inside yourself, when it's over, you're done. But you just won't face it. Well, sometimes you need to just face it. And it's it's amusing to compare this to the average 60-year-old who takes up, you know, I'm going to learn to play the mandolin at age 60. And everything's up uphill. It's it, it, They're getting better and better and better and better. I mean, I'm not saying this is age-dependent. You can learn to do new things, but sometimes the old stuff just isn't cutting it anymore. And sometimes you got to just say, to hell with it, you know? Now, I'm not one to believe you should chunk the baby with the bathwater. I think, um, you know, like my knowledge and experience, experiences and um, of being on stage and playing in bands and doing all these things is still valuable. Even though maybe you don't really want to see me play, you know, a mandolin solo on stage, you know. It's not as good as it once was. You know, I, I told a guy in an email a couple of days ago, I said, uh, if you want to see Brad Laird play in the mandolin, go back to 1984 through 2007. Anything outside that window was, I didn't know what I was doing yet, and I can't do it anymore. You know, those are the outer wings of that curve. That's just life. It bothers me because, you know, you hate something you, you really loved. But if you can't do it, well, maybe go find something else that you can do. That you can be, you know, and start the curve again, you know, on a different thing. And I think maybe this podcast is one little example of that, you know. I can't play it. Well, I, I can certainly talk it and I can recall things and you know explain things and you know there's still some continuing value just like those oak logs are now going to grow mush mushrooms anyway let me tell you about the Mosier brothers so i <clears throat> and jeff uh comes to me sees me playing bass with uh i was playing with curtis jones and uh had a little pickup gig i think it was um i think it was curtis jones on guitar uh, Jeff Howalt on banjo, and I and I was on bass filling in for Jeff's son, and uh, David Blackman on fiddle, and we're playing up there at uh, where were we? Somewhere I, I I don't remember Swanee maybe. Some some little thing. Um, anyway, Jeff was there and he he saw me playing the bass. Well, I've been playing the bass for 20 years, kind of on the, you know, closet bass player and stuff. And I was teaching lessons and playing with a corrigible string band and stuff like that. And I would take the bass and play one bass solo on it during, uh, we, the Cedar Hill traditionally did, uh, that old song, smoke, smoke, smoke that cigarette. And, uh, our bass player, 
sang it. So he would step to the microphone, Fred McIsaac, and uh, sing, smoke a cigarette, and do the disappearing. Uh, he, he had all these cigarette tricks where he could make it go inside his mouth and pop back out, and we would all light cigarettes, and the whole band would have like four. And he, you know, it was a big comedic thing. But he couldn't do all that and play the bass, so I always played the bass on that song uh, from 1983 on. And uh, I began to take solos on that tune, and I would play this one bass solo. That's all I really did. Anyway, Mosier was at that little pickup gig that I was playing with Howald and uh, came up to me afterwards. I'm like, I didn't know you played the bass. I'm like, yeah, I've been, I do. <laughs> Anyway, about a week later, he called me. He said, look, I want to start a band. All right, we, we've started a band. Me and my brother, Johnny, have started a band. and We're going to call it the Mosier Brothers, and, uh, you know, we need a bass player. I'm like, well, and I knew the band that Jeff had had for, I don't know, 10, 10 years before that. Blueground, undergrass, totally hippie. You know, had a pedal steel and everything was plugged in. It's just crazy stuff. And I saw him a few times. Not really my cup of tea. And I was like, Jeff, you know, I, I don't know. I think maybe you need, you know, like a five-string electric bass player, you know, some dude with long hair or something. I mean, seriously, me, Jeff, come on. He's like, no, nah, we're just going to play. We're going to be. We're going traditional. We're going, it's all going, I quote, squared up. None of this hippie beep. I'm like, well, okay. And he said to me, I want somebody on the bass that has actually heard Jimmy Martin. I'm like, well, I've heard Jimmy Martin. Okay. All right. So he convinced me that he was going to go squared up. None of this hippie beep. And uh, I'm like, okay. All right, so I quit Cedar Hill, a band I was in 27 years, and I joined the Mosier Brothers. I played 13 gigs with the Mosier Brothers, and it progressively got weirder and weirder. It started out kind of squared up, as he said, uh, you know, a little bit. I mean, some of the tunes are just straight up old bluegrass stuff, you know. But then it got weirder and weirder. Plus, we had a drummer, Jack Watson. Great drummer. Loud. Loud. You know, I thought he was just going to play brushes or something. But no, he's... You ever heard a, a drummer sound checking at a, like, a kind of a rock type thing? We played the five spot one time. And... uh Jack's over there sound checking. And what you do when you sound check the drums, you beat the snot out of the drums while the uh, sound man twiddles his dials and tries to not um, overdrive the PA. <laughs> That's what they do. Slam, bam, 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 bam. And I went back to my little road case and pulled out a big wad of foam uh, from that corrugated foam that was in the lid of the thing. And made myself some earplugs. I couldn't stand next to the guy. My God, it was like ice picks jamming in my ear every time he hit that snare as hard as he could. Now, that was sound check. He didn't play like that. I mean, he was a very sensitive and tasteful drummer. But we played a gig one time. I played 13 gigs with him, a fateful number. 
I played uh, 13 gigs, and at the final gig, my son Jackson, little Jackson, with his little musical ears, he's so musical, uh, he was there, and he had a little backpack with a little, little, I don't know, it was a ukulele or a banjo or something in his little backpack, and he was walking around, hanging around backstage, he's only like three, or I think he was about three, and he watched us for backstage and stuff. And uh, when I come off stage, um, this was in Lafayette, Georgia. It was the last gig I ever did with him. We come off stage, and uh, Bruce Hampton, by the way, was sitting backstage, you know, yucking it up with Jackson. While we, he, he was like, he had a couch back there, and he was sitting back there. And uh, Jackson was like interacting. He, uh, Hampton probably guessed his birthday, you know. Anyway come off stage and I saw Jackson there and I said, Jackson, how'd you like it? He said, Jack Watson is too loud. That was a drummer. <laughs> anyway, he was correcting that, you know, but, uh, you know, the thing, it started with one pretense of we're going to play it squared up and traditional. And then it just turned into, uh, I think all the guys in the band just really wanted to be doing the blue ground thing again, you know? And, uh, I was canned, and uh, that's the end of that. And they, you know, whatever. I don't even know if they're still playing. Anyway, Jeff, if you're out there, had a good time. It was it was fun, but it wasn't all squared up. I did like the squared up type stuff, and I I certainly thoroughly enjoyed uh, playing with Jeff and Johnny when they did a you know when they laid down into that more acousticy mode, you know. And uh, David Blackman is one of the finest fiddle players. He's just an amazing guy. And, you know, I, I still cherish those memories. However, I'm, I'm kind of sorry that uh, it wasn't um, accurately presented to me. And, uh, you know, water under the bridge again. I, I was right on the verge of quitting when I was fired anyway. So, you know, sometimes you just got to quit. And that was a good one to quit because it just wouldn't have, it wouldn't have fit. You know, I wasn't the dude. I was not the dude. I don't play the five string electric thing. I'm, I'm, you know, <clears throat> all I can say is what was I thinking? And to Jeff, all I can say is what were you thinking? Come on. Anyway, that was all good. And I buried the hatchet. I called Jeff, uh, a while. Well, I called him everything in the book. And then about a year later, I called him and we talked and I ceremoniously buried the hatchet. Just like there was a uh, old Civil War re, uh, reunion, like in 1905 or something, where a bunch of old veterans from the Yankees and the, and the rebels uh, met at, you know, at the dedication of some statue and literally ceremoniously buried the hatchet each side dug a hole and buried a hatchet, an, an actual hatchet. You know, I wish we had a little of that today. These people pulling down these statues and just bad-mouthing everybody that doesn't believe exactly like they do. This is destroying this country. And I'm very disappointed in the performance of my fellow human beings on such a simple exam, as I said in Mandolin Masterclass. Anyway, Jeff, if you're out there 
love to see you again. And uh, I did see him down here in America a couple of years ago. He brought his group down here and played. And he, he saw me. I was up there playing with the Pluck Tones. And he saw me. He's like, man, you still playing the bass? I said, yeah, you fired me. But that didn't mean I had to quit playing the bass. And, uh, you know. Anyway, I miss you, Jeff. And uh, love to talk to you again. Maybe get you on the show one of these days. Anyway, so I quit. Well, I was fired from that one. I quit Cedar Hill and I was fired from uh, the Mosier Brothers. Um, I, I, I guess you could roll into this too. Um, I mean, think about this. Earl quit Flat and Scruggs. Think about that. Flat and Scruggs, well, you know, it's the number two bluegrass band in the world. You got a Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys at the top. Flat and Scruggs would be number two. And he quit. He quit. He just quit. He also, by the way, Earl quit Bill Monroe. Earl, you know, Bill Monroe has Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys, and Earl's a member, and Lester Flatt's a member, and they both quit. So people quit, you know. And what we got out of that was Flat and Scruggs. So it, it was actually good. It was a good thing. It was difficult for Bill, you know, to uh, have constant turnover and that kind of thing. But quitting doesn't end things. It actually expanded things. In that case, we now had Flat and Scruggs. And then think, I, mean, I think in 1969, Earl quit again. He quit Flat and Scruggs. Quitter. Earl the quitter. <laughs> but is he, you know, yeah, he's quitting one thing, but he's going on to something else. In that case, it didn't bring us great stuff. We ended up with Lester Flat and the Nashville Grass, which was a great man, but nobody ever considered it greater than Flat and Scruggs. It was just a way to see, you know, Marty Stewart and, you know, uh, leftovers from Flat and Scruggs era and here Lester, you know. But nobody ever said the Nashville grass was better than Flat and Scruggs. Nobody ever said that. So sometimes it creates something better. Sometimes it doesn't. And Earl went off to do um, the Earl Scruggs Review, which very, very few people would say, oh, well, that was a lot better than Flat and Scruggs. And practically nobody in Bluegrass will say that any of that stuff was better than, oh, the original bluegrass band with Bill Monroe and Lester and Earl. You know, that's, oh, I, it, you know, that's the greatest thing ever. Yeah, and they all quit, and then they start other things, which then some of them are the greatest thing ever, and some of them aren't, and, you know, it just goes on and on. I mean, think about uh, Doyle Lawson and Quicksilver. How many times has his band quit? Over and over and over, and individually or in gangs. I mean... We would not have third time out if Doyle's entire band didn't walk away and start third time out. And then we have two bands because Doyle quickly regrouped and had Quicksilver back, you know, in full bore. And we had third time out, too. I mean, thank God those, guy, those guys quit. Russell Moore, I mean, come on. Third Time Out is one of the greatest bluegrass bands ever. And so is Doyle Austin Quicksilver. Quitting actually helped. It's expanding. It's like that mushroom mycelium spreading through that 
oak log spreading the bluegrass. So sometimes quitting is a good thing to do. That's all I'm saying. Sometimes you need to just quit. But don't just quit and stop. Quit and do something. I'm always saying do something. Well, maybe the thing you need to do is quit. Do you need to quit that marriage? I don't encourage people to, you know, like go off half cocked and, and quit a marriage. I mean, that's a serious thing, especially when children are involved. But it is possible that quitting such an arrangement actually benefits everyone. It's possible. Same with business partnerships. I mean, if you're partners with somebody, maybe the best thing you can do is go your separate ways and, you know, learn from your mistakes. Um, what about employment? So, you know, you're employed somewhere. Maybe, maybe, maybe you just need to quit. But I'm not saying quit and stop doing anything. I'm saying quit and go do something. Do something else. It, it can improve the world or it can just make a mess of things. All right. I've started jams and I've ended them. Every jam, organized jam that I've ever started, Five Spot, the especially for you, the County Line Tavern, eventually I quit doing them. Why? Why? And then what came after it? You know, quitting isn't as bad as people make it out to be. It, it seems bad at the time for all parties involved, but generally everybody gets over you pretty quick and uh, they move on. And that's what um, I'm saying. There is some value in quitting. You know, I, I, I've seen people struggling to play an instrument. And sometimes I think they ought to just quit. I mean, wh why are you torturing yourself like that? Why do you continue to torture yourself thinking that you're ever going to be a fiddle player. You're not going to be a fiddle player. You're never going to be a fiddle player uh, to the point that... And, and now, let me say this. Some people struggle and struggle, and, and they do accomplish something, but a lot of people don't. Maybe that person would be better off um, running a PA and being a sound man or being a manager, a bus driver, or uh, take up, uh, you know, selling boiled peanuts on the corner, or switch to the Dobro. You know, I was telling, uh, I had a little jam down here last Tuesday. By the way, I've started a Tuesday jam session at my barn for the guys at the old pizza place down at Pat's Place. We had a regular Tuesday little picking thing, and uh, that was all you know, washed away in the tidal wave we call COVID and has not resurrected yet. So, I, you know, I've had a few jams out here over the summer. I've told you about them. And I just decided spring's here. So long as the weather cooperates, I'm just going to have the alternate jam here. Can't do it there or don't want to do it there or legally restricted, whatever. I'm having it here. So we did. Two weeks in a row. Same bunch. The only thing we're lacking is the pizza, the free beer, and the audience. But everything else is the same. You know, at my place, it's BYOB and pickers only. You know, we don't have any kind of audience. 
Anyway, I forgot where I was going with that. Something about Patrick Owen. Nah, I can't remember. I've rambled on enough. All I would say is um, quitting isn't always a negative. Sometimes it's positive. Same with getting fired. You know, that's like, it has the same end result as quitting. Like you could quit your job or you could be fired. But the end result, like the next day when everybody shows up is the same. He ain't here no more. The net is the same. It's just who instigated it. You know, were you booted out of a band or did you walk away on your own? You know, probably generally better to walk away on your own. But I just want you to consider this, that sometimes if things aren't proceeding as you hoped and you've tried, you know, to alter the direction and the path and but just it looks sometimes you just know it ain't working and uh, make yourself a little plan you know think about well what will i do if i quit then what you know think that out thoroughly before you as they say look before you leap uh don't be hasty and don't do it in anger i mean you want to you want to read leaving or quitting in anger read butch robbins's book what i know about what i know i've recommended it multiple times he describes quitting bill monroe two times but the second time was the most um, heinous (laughs) of the two and uh he wasn't proud of it and he admits that so you know learn from that yeah i've done it both ways and uh, when I've done it in haste or in anger, it, it has never left a good taste in anyone's mouth. Uh, you know, be as cautious as you can and as caring. Even your mortal enemy who is driving you crazy that you just want to separate yourself from doesn't maybe deserve, you know, the treatment. You know what I mean? Sometimes you just need to shake hands and walk away and then get busy doing something else that you do want to do. So that's it. And, uh, thanks everybody on on the Patreon side, all the patrons of the show over there at bradleylaird.com slash Patreon. No, the patreon.com slash Bradley Laird. Sorry. Always get that backwards. Thank you patrons. And I want to make special note of a patron. He's not officially a patron, not on patreon.com slash Bradley Laird, but he's like, well, could I just send you a check? I was like, yeah, sure. You got my address. And I would just like to publicly acknowledge Mr. Ed Davis, uh, my longtime friend, banjo player, mandolinist, mando cello player, band director, uh, was a former banjo student of mine for, I think, three lessons, <laughs> uh, was the bass player. It uh, was the bass player in Pony Express for a time and just longtime friend. Uh, I got a, a wonderfully handwritten letter from Ed with a check inside. And, uh, 
my eyes popped out of my head when I saw that check, Ed. And I, I sent him a, when I got it, I sent him a text message. I said, Ed, got your letter. I bought two bottles of liquor, picked up three hookers, and am on my way to the dog tracks in Alabama. Thank you. <laughs> None of which was true, by the way. I actually signed the back of the check and handed it to my lovely wife, Darlene. And uh, anyway, thank you, Ed Davis, and thank you to any of you who do, in fact, support Grass Talk Radio. I hope this little mindless diatribe was helpful. Maybe there's something you need to quit, and maybe I have inspired you to quit. Y'all take care. Talk to you in the next episode. So much worse now than ever in times past. Satan is seeking whom he may devour. But hold on a little longer, we're in the final hour. Jesus gave his life that we should never die. He gave us the promise when he ascended on high. That he'll return in all his glory and all of his power. Since that precious moment, we're in the final hour. And in that final hour, we won't be looking back. We'll fix our eyes on Jesus and take the righteous path. When the walls come tumbling down, we'll be safe within his grasp. And be with our Lord and Savior at last. Shout so loud God's children have suffered But we're kept by His power Soon it will all be over We're in the final hour And in that final hour We won't be looking back We'll fix our eyes on Jesus And take the righteous path When the walls come tumbling down We'll be safe within His grasp And be with our Lord and Savior at last final hour, we won't be looking back. We'll fix our eyes on Jesus and take the righteous path. When the walls come tumbling down, we'll be safe within His grasp. And be with our Lord and Savior at last. We'll be with our Lord and Savior at last.